Lord, we love you. And again, we thank you for um, this time that we have uh, to discuss uh, hermeneutics, to talk about uh, Bible study methods, Lord. I pray that you'll speak through me, Lord, that we all will be faithful to your word tonight, Lord. Um, and even as we work through this, Lord, uh, and some of it might just seem exhausting or boring, Lord, I pray that you remind us uh, why we are studying this in the first place, Lord. We want to get to know you more and more and more, Lord. We desire to know you as best as we can, Lord. And you have revealed yourself to us, Lord, through your word, Lord. And that is incredible and that we have the opportunity to look into that, Lord. And I pray that we will uh, be diligent in knowing you the best we possibly can, Lord, with the minds you have given us, Lord, and with your spirit helping us along the way. Lord, I pray for everyone here that we will um, all be attentive, Lord, and uh, that you will be teaching us um, things that will help, Lord, as we seek to know you more. I pray these things in your name. Amen. All right. Uh, so I was talking to Elizabeth along the way here um, about the, the topic for tonight, as you can see, literary context. And we were commenting on how boring this topic sounds. Um, this topic for me and for a lot of people may not necessarily sound incredibly exciting, and that's all right. Um, but it's still important for us to work through and talk through as it relates to uh, unpacking the Bible and trying to understand it properly. So last week, what did we talk about last week? Historical cultural context, right? So now it makes sense to talk about the literary context. Uh, context is incredibly important, and I think we all know that or recognize that by now. Uh, context makes all the difference. Otherwise, we could ultimately make the Bible say whatever we wanted to if we take it out of context, right? Uh, and many people have done that. Many people do do that. And that's why there has been um, many different heretical beliefs that have uh, come come about. Uh, we have uh, different uh, groups such as Mormonism, uh, Jehovah Witnesses. Um, those are just some examples where uh, it's interesting. If you talked to uh, someone from the Church of Latter-day Saints, uh, they would use our Bible, Scripture, the 66 books that we profess as Scripture, uh, to prove, try to prove, some false doctrines that they teach. And they are able to do that because a lot of times they take the text out of context. And so that's why this is incredibly important for us to look at the historical context as well as the literary context. So, as you can see, literary context and biblical interpretation. Uh, who likes, who liked English class as you went through school, in grade school, high school, um, English languages? Some people. Um, I did not. <laughs> uh, it's something I had to uh, work through, and obviously I somehow passed. Uh, but a lot of the things that you talk about in that class 
in English, or just languages in general, is what we'll be talking about uh, today. Uh, genres and those sort of things, and how words relate to each other, the syntax, sentence structure, uh, those sort of things is all involved in literary context. So the first part of your note sheet, I want everyone to follow along, right? What is literary context slash why is it important? This is how we started last week, talking about historical, cultural context. So what is it and why is it important? Uh, you can see I pulled a few quotes talking about it. Uh, the Duvall and Hayes uh, um, book, Grasping God's Word, um, defines it as this, or talks about it as this. Literary context relates uh, to the particular form a passage takes. So talking about the literary genre, what genre is it in, and uh, uh, to the words, sentences, and paragraphs that surround the passage you are studying. So the, there's two components in this definition, right? The literary context relates to the particular form of the passage, the genre, and it relates to the words, sentences, and paragraphs that surrounding the passage itself. So we need to understand the genre, obviously, and then we also need to understand the surrounding context of the specific text that you're looking at, right? So when you prepare um, a study on a specific text in Scripture, um, say if it's only five verses long, you want to not just read those five verses, right? You need to see how they relate to the rest of the passage around it. And that's speaking to the second part of this definition here, right? So you, have, you need these two components. And then uh, Kevin Van Hooser, uh, here's a quote from him talking about, well, what is literary genre? Uh, he says, literary genre acts as a kind of covenant of communication, a fixed agreement between author and reader about how to communicate, right? So an author communicates certain things to a reader differently with different types of genres. And so this is why it's important for us to understand what genre we're even in when we um, look at a text in scripture. So, my question for you all, as you can see on your note sheet, why is it important to work through the literary context? I only said what it was, but I didn't tell you why it's important, so I want to hear some of your guys' thoughts. Why do you think it's important to work through this literary context? Let me say something. It, to me, it, that what is around it, the rest of it helps you understand what, what's in it. That it, it's all part of meaning. Mm. If you don't read those parts, you don't get the meaning. Yeah, that's really good. Were you going to say something, Lonnie? It depends. It, it tells you also whether or not it's an actual event or they're talking about or is it uh, told for the sake of a story. Jesus told parables. And, and you, we, we sometimes make the assumption that the parable actually occurred versus it's just told as a story to teach a lesson. That's really good. And we are actually going to get a little bit to that tonight. Uh, and one of the parables I bring up in here um, is the prodigal son, right? If you just jump into the middle of that parable and you're reading about the story of this prodigal son, you might jump to the conclusion, well, this is a true story that actually happened. Well, no, this is a parable that Jesus is teaching using in order to bring out a point, right? So 
that's a that's a good example. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, any other thoughts? Why is it important to work through the literary context? In some of the psalms, you can see that it's poetic and it's done not for the f format, but uh, for, for the style, or that it was, you know, yeah, because it was probably a song or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Just richer. Richer. I think when you have a better understanding of the person who was writing it, what was happening when it was being written, and why it was written the way it was. Sure. I think it just it makes it more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Richer. Yeah. You guys are giving really good answers. The answer um, that I was wondering if someone would say is more broad in general in just our task as Christians in studying the scripture, right? We uh, work through the literary context for all the reasons you guys said, but then ultimately also to honor God with our pursuits and trying to know him well, right? Uh, God has told us about himself in his word, right? Uh, he has told us incredible things about himself, uh, he has revealed his heart to us, and how can we not take the effort needed um, or just put as much effort in as possible to understand this as fully as possible, right? Uh, obviously, with the help of the Holy Spirit and everything like that. I'm not saying if someone's better at working through literary devices, they'll know God better. That's not necessarily what I'm saying, right? But it does help in just understanding the full context of what's happening. Uh, so literary context is important, right? So a big part of that is our genres, right? Uh, genres of the Bible. Uh, so I divided this section up to six different genres. People divide these up differently. And I tried to make it as concise as possible. So you could see the very first one, I put Old and New Testament's historical narrative together. Uh, ultimately, like, stories, right? The Gospels and Acts, a lot of times, would I would put maybe under this category. Um, some might divide this up a little bit differently. Uh, and a lot of the historical events in the Old Testament would also be under this category. So... You could see I have a couple different things here. Um, there are several different modes of Old Testament historical narrative. Um, first one you could see on your note sheet are stories. Stories are in the historical narrative. Um, a story in the Bible, uh, I think we could think of many. I think of Joseph maybe right off the top of my head. story of Joseph uh, in Genesis. Stories can be either um, factual or fictional uh, when we refer to stories, right? Some key devices that are included in stories are dialogues, speeches, um, people talking back and forth with each other, right? Uh, those are in a lot of times stories. Um, description, commentary on something, uh, the Old Testament uses a lot of 
historical stories to teach a point, right? Actual factual things that have taken place to teach a point. Um, Again, Joseph, that's a historical factual story that has actually happened. And I think of Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, at the very end, where you see an incredible truth that is taught through the story of Joseph. Does anyone know what Genesis 50, chapter 20 is? Someone want to look it up? You could let someone else, or you could do it. I'll let somebody else do it. <laughs> okay. Someone look it up and read it out loud. It's got a bunch of names in it, doesn't it? That's what Pastor Jason doesn't want to do. I would like to see us true. There's no, there's not a bunch of names in it. It's very short and brief. You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good, for the saving of many nations? Yes. Yes. So you intended it for evil, God intended it for good. Ultimately... Referring back, this is what Joseph is reflecting on in the story throughout his whole life and what his brothers did to him, right? Sold him into slavery, ultimately, and the struggles that he went through, um, showing ultimately how God is in complete control over all, and God has purposes for all, and he is not caught by surprise at all. Um, Talking about the great power and sovereignty of God, and in that, and we see that through the story of Joseph. Uh, so stories is a first part that we could talk about with historical narratives. Uh, accounts. As I was first working through this, I was like, well, what are the differences between stories and accounts of something? Uh, as you can see on your note sheet, I put a quote here uh, to help us define like how some use accounts or how Scripture uses accounts in a historical narrative. Accounts are selective presentations of facts designed to present a theological evaluation of that record, one that will bring about a proper spiritual and ethical response on the part of its readers. Um, So there's an example in Joshua chapter 24. I mean, there's plenty of examples throughout the Old Testament, but there's an example in Joshua 24 where there's a historical account that's given uh, of talking about a past event, someone reflecting on it, and then makes a conclusion about God and his greatness as a result. Um, an, an account is generally just another historical event, right? It could also kind of fall under the line of story, but it's more um, precise in that it's, wanting to give a direct theological application as a result of giving it. And so you can see that there. And then there's also reports given uh, throughout the historical narrative. Reports provides information of um, historical nature, right? There's battle reports. There's lists and rosters of different things. You could have genealogies, those, those sort of things. Um, the senses, right, of different people. So these are all different examples of historical narrative. Uh, with that, there are different elements within the historical narrative. Remember, we're still just talking about one genre. So what are the different elements within the historical narrative? Uh, these are simple things like the setting, the plot, uh, the characterization, who's the protagonist, who is the antagonist, those sort of things. So setting, plot, characterization. 
are, are those three things. Uh, for, when, for teaching the Bible to children, right, a lot of times these stories, these narratives are many times the easiest to teach because people like stories, right? Stories are easy to remember, and God uses stories to teach points as well, right? Uh, styles of the narrative, and you can see things here, uh, different styles of different narratives in the Old Testament and the New Testament could include this list here um, I have for you. Uh, so there's a lot that we could talk about when it comes to the historical narrative, especially if I'm trying to combine the Old and New Testament in one category. Um, as I was working through this, putting this together for us, I was realizing how vast the subject is. Uh, it's a lot more, there's a lot more to it than just the historical context, right? When we say the historical context, I could give you points and what to do. Look um, at the author, look at the recipients, what's happening in that culture during that time, give you principles to work with. But with the literary context, with all these different genres, there's so many different rules and literary devices and styles and things like that that we could explore in, the, uh, in Scripture that... Um, Takes could take a long time. So we're going to rush through some of these. Uh, does anyone have any comments or questions on the historical narrative before we move on to the second one? Just a reminder, future weeks are going to highlight each of these genres yes. and interpretation. So yes. yeah. yeah, that's a good point. So in future weeks, the second half of this semester, uh, we will be putting all of these tools I've been talking about this first half and dive into specific passages into these different genres, in these different genres. Um, so we'll have practice in interpreting them, uh, each genre appropriately. So this won't be the last time we'll be talking about genres. So whether you're excited or disappointed in that, I don't know, <laughs> but that's, that's the truth. So but that's a good point. And you'll see the genres, actually, the second half of the semester are laid out a little bit differently than how I've laid them out here even now. So I'm doing that to trick you. <laughs> That's an example of misunderstanding. Yes, <laughs> yes. What is an example of a misunderstanding in, in the New Testament? So uh, Jason was looking at the styles of narrative, and you could see that list there. And I have misunderstanding in that list, and that might sound strange. How could misunderstanding be a style of a narrative? Uh, we see that a lot in the New Testament, uh, especially when Jesus is teaching. Right? Many people misunderstand him. Um, I think of, off the top of my head, uh, the woman at the well, when Jesus is speaking to her, uh, and he says he's the living water, right? And she is confused, thinking that he is talking about actual physical water. Um, so that's an example of a misunderstanding here. But, I mean, we could go on and on and give plenty of examples of this. Um, so I don't think we need to necessarily give examples of each of these styles right now. Uh, so poetry and wisdom literature... Who likes poetry? 
No one. <laughs> Who likes wisdom? Hopefully, all of you should be raising your hand. I mean, why wouldn't someone like wisdom? <laughs> right? Um, wisdom is a good thing to pray for. Uh, we all need it. Uh, God will give it if we ask for it. And we try to uh, work through it and seek him in it. What's the beginning of wisdom? Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord, right. Um, so with poetry and wisdom literature, those two things are normally lumped together as we talk about genres. Um, what's an example of poetry in scripture? Psalms. Psalms. What's an example of wisdom literature? Proverbs. 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 Okay. Uh, those are some of the probably first books that people would attend to go. Um, so some characteristics of biblical poetry. What are some characteristics? There's a lot, right? Uh, we're not necessarily going to go through all of the details either on this. Um, we will go through more of it later, as we said. Uh, but one of the main characteristics in biblical poetry is parallelism. Uh, there are a lot of parallels that poetry makes uh, to teach a point. Right? So the three I want to talk about tonight uh, are... Uh, similar parallelism, uh, antithetic parallelism, and progressive parallelism. So someone look up Psalm 19, verse 1. Psalm 19, verse 1. Who has that? Raise your hand if you want to read that one out loud. All right, Belinda has that one. Uh, Someone else get Proverbs 14, verse 34. All right, Julie has that one. And then the last one, Psalm 57, verse 1. Who wants that one? All right. Nancy, did you raise your hand? Who reads first? Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. All right. So think about the three different parallelisms, right? We have... Similar parallelism, which there's two things that parallel each other in Scripture that, ta- that teach the closeness of thought of something. Um, and then we have the antithetic parallelism, which I think is obvious where there's anti- antithesis, right? Where there's things that are being contrasted. And then we have progressive parallelism, where something progresses as they make the, the parallelism. So based on what Belinda has read for us, uh, Psalm 19, verse 1. Which one do you think that would fall under? If you want to read it again. Sure. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. The heavens declare the glory of God, and then the expanse is mentioned, right, in the works of his hands. Is it similar parallelism? Is it contrasting? Is it progressive? Is there any idea of being progressed in that? Which one do you guys think it is? Similar, yeah, exactly. So that would be an example of the similar one, All right? Uh, who wants, who was reading Proverbs fourteen thirty four? Julie, you want to read that? Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So which one would that be? Antithetic. Yep. All right. Those are two opposing things working together. Uh, and then the last one, 
Nancy, you have that one? Yes. <clears throat> be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in thee my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of thy wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. All right. So we see Christ being merciful, God being merciful, and then uh, progresses into him being refuge, right? So that would be the last one. So let's do this experiment now, or practice, not experiment. Let's practice with New Testament passages. I, went, I pulled New Testament passages to show that poetry can also be in the New Testament. So when I say the genre of poetry, I'm not just talking about those books that you think about in the, in the Old Testament, right? Books of the Bible don't always fit perfectly nicely in its entirety into just one genre, right? Uh, so there are some examples here in the Gospels that we see um, this parallelism happening, this poetry happening here. So who wants Matthew 7.7? 7? Raise your hand. All right, Elizabeth gets Matthew 7.7. 7. Who wants Matthew 7.17? 7, Julie. And then the last one, Matthew 5.7. All right, we're doing the exact same thing. So using these same categories of parallelism, we're going to try to assign which one goes with which verse. All right. So whoever has Matthew 7, 7 could read that, and you guys should try to figure out which one goes where. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. What do you guys think? All right, write down what you think, and let's go to the next one. <laughs> Matthew seven seventeen says, So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased trees bear bad fruit. All right. What do you guys think that one is? All right. I just call it Sure. You can do that one. spell that word. It's the butt. That's all right. That's all right. And then the last one, what do you guys think? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What do you guys think? Can you read it one more time? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy. What did you guys put for the first one? I said that was progressive. Yeah. I think, I think Lonnie is right. Uh, this one would be the similar one, and the progressive one was the first one. Right? Uh, so this is a, just a fun exercise of we could see um, how different parallels are used in Scripture here. All right. Another characteristic of poetry, uh, there's, a, like I said, a lot of different characteristics, um, but we're just going to look at two. So we talked about one. The second one is imagery. There's a lot of imagery given in poetry. Uh, when I think of imagery, I mean, there's so many different examples throughout Psalms, Song of Solomon as well. There's a lot of imagery. Um, what are some examples of imagery that you might think of that come to mind right away and how scripture uses that in, in poetry? 
We could go to Psalms. It's maybe an easier one. What does it say about Christ or God? What was that? Revelation following there. Revelation. The imagery that we're given, like, of the dragon and the woman and, like, Yeah, so imagery can fall in different genres, right? We will get to that genre in a bit. Uh, so that's a good, that's a good point. Uh, we will get to that genre in a bit. But in Psalms, right, what are, what are some examples of different imageries you could think of? Because the deer pants for the water. Yeah. So my soul longs My soul longs for you. Yeah, that's an example. Uh, I think one of the most common examples is um, God being our good shepherd, right? Um, that's a common imagery. Right? There's an image given to teach a point of what it's like. Right? Um, so there are different uh, types of imageries in there. So I think we'll move on to wisdom literature. Um, what are the three books you generally think of when you talk about wisdom literature? I know I said we shouldn't necessarily always just take a book and put it perfectly in one genre. Um, I think it's easier to do maybe with the wisdom literature, uh, but what are three books that tend to be put in this genre? Proverbs, <laughs> Proverbs is one. There's two more. Probably. Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. What about uh, Isaiah? Isaiah would be a prophet. James. James. <laughs> I'm talking about Old Testament. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, there are a lot of wisdom literature that we could probably label that in the New Testament. Um, so, but what's a, the third one in the Old Testament that we generally put in that category? Job is the third one, right? So we have Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes tend to be put in this category. Um, let me see. And yeah, I have this on your note sheet, this nice little quote here. Uh, just talking about a little bit of the nature of what wisdom literature entails. All wisdom literature is uh, basically instructional in nature, um, with the author attempting to impart wise observations on the meaning of life and the proper conduct necessarily to enjoy life to the fullest. Um, so that's wisdom literature, right? Um, and then we have prophecy. But is there anything that you guys want to talk about when it comes to poetry or wisdom literature? Like I said, there's a lot here that we're not necessarily covering. But that's all right for now. All right. Uh, prophecy. Who likes prophecy? No one likes prophecy. All right. Uh, I think prophecy is something I, I mean, prophecy is something I really enjoyed when I was in high school, when I was starting to realize how incredible it was that Jesus fulfilled so many different messianic prophecies about him. Um, and that the odds of him actually, of one man actually fulfilling these hundreds of prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament um, were so small that Christ 
has to be the Messiah um, for more reasons than just that. But it's really cool when you start studying prophecy. So prophecy is another genre. Uh, we're just going to quickly go over um, just the books here. Uh, you can see, typically speaking, we label four books to be the major prophets and 12 books to be the minor prophets. And you could see them listed here. My question for you guys, why do we label some books major prophets and some books minor prophets? Size of book, right? It's not obviously about the importance of it. Um, it's just the size of the book. So if you want to read through a book of the Bible, uh, one book of the Bible a day, I mean, you could do that easily for 12 days in a row with these minor prophets. <laughs> and... Um, just learn a lot of cool things that many people don't talk about. I feel like the minor prophets a lot of times um, get forgotten about. Um, and there's a lot of cool things we could learn in there. Um, talking about future stuff, obviously, right? Um, of when the time of when it was written about the Messiah, who Christ would be, where he would be born. Uh, future prophecy about judgments and things like that. Uh, so there's some really cool things there. Uh, so prophecy is, is one. And then number four, parables. Uh, going back into the New Testament, right? I'm talking about a lot of the parables that Jesus uh, used to teach. Um, here, you could see a quick definition. Parables. A parable is a short narrative that demands a response from the hearer uh, with regard to genre. Parables are true to life or realistic stories. They differ from historical narrative in that they are not true stories, right? And we talked about that a little bit earlier. Um, they're not necessarily true stories that actually happened, um, but they're realistic stories that we can relate to um, and understand, such as the prodigal son, right? And loads of other ones. Uh, you can see various forms of parables I have here on the chart for you. Um, a parable that acts like a simile is the first one, right? Using like or as as a simile. And that's, you can see, just a one-verse parable talking about the kingdom of heaven. Uh, you, could, you can see there's short parables and then there's uh, story parables, example parables. Uh, this passage here in Luke is talking about the prodigal son. And then the last one is an allegorical parable. Um, where there's multiple things in the parable that represents something. And you can look up that passage. So this is actually a tricky discussion right here when we get into parables and allegory, um, where there are some people who do not put this in the same category. There is a distinction between parables and there's a distinction between allegories. Uh, or some people might put them in the same category and say, um, there are uh, parables that are allegory, uh, but not all are. So this is, like I said, a tricky subject, and it could get become dangerous, right, when we are reading parables and we interpret them all allegorically, where we're finding, trying to put meaning into every single part of the um, parable where there shouldn't necessarily be meaning found. Right? So this is why it's important to see these various forms of parables and see that many of the parables are story parables to um, give an example of something. 
right? And you shouldn't necessarily have to find meaning of who represents what in each small thing. Sometimes, though, you should do that. Um, so context makes the difference. Uh, a lot of times, if you just keep reading later in the chapter, Jesus himself will interpret it for you and uh, tell you what each thing represents. And you can see it served allegorically in that sense. Um, so the question is, as you can see here, how can you come to a proper interpretation of parables? Uh, this is a big discussion, like I said, and it's hard to do that. But what are some initial steps you might take in order to come to an interpretation? What would you Sometimes say? Jesus explains it himself. Yeah. So you have a template. Yeah. And we know we can trust that interpretation, right? Yeah, that's really good. So making sure uh, that it's not contrary to any other part of Scripture, right? We know Scripture is one unified story of God and His uh, story of redemption and how He saves humanity. Uh, so making sure it doesn't contradict with anything else. There's multiple parables in a row. Uh, often they have a similar intended meaning. For yeah. example, Luke 15. That's a really good example. Uh, really good thing, right? A lot of times there can be parables teaching the exact same thing, uh, exact same meaning. And when we look at the different parables together teaching the same thing, it helps us understand the teaching points even more. So these are all good examples. Did you have something, Tom? Yeah. Your definition says, not your definition, but the definition you quoted says, parable is a short narrative that demands a response from the hearer. I'm more used to a definition of a short story that teaches a moral lesson. Because response from the reader is too bad, I mean, too broad in that my response could be, I'm going to throw it in the trash can. Or sure. It, it's not, well, so what are you thinking about? What moral lesson am I trying to teach? I mean, that's what you're trying to get at with the looking at a parable, yeah. not what's your reaction to it. Sure, and, and I think on what you just said, teaching a moral lesson is kind of what they mean, right? Uh, because there's a moral lesson, the point of it is for you to respond to that moral lesson, uh, for you not just to hear it and not take anything away from it, right? It, there, there's action for you to do in change of your behavior. So I think that's the intended meaning behind this. But we could word it maybe a little different. Interpretation, and I'm like, eh. yeah. Obviously, taking a more literal interpretation of what they wrote. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> Any other discussion points on this section? Parables. All right. Like I said, we'll work through this genre more so in weeks to come. Uh, epistles, uh, number five. What are epistles? Letters, right, of the apostles. 
Um, you see these in the New Testament. Uh, so basic things that you would want to look at when you're looking at an epistle um, are know the different components of the letter, right? Like the opening, the body, conclusion, uh, the different forms of it. Know the different types of letters, right? There's some letters that are more like thank you letters, like the book of Philippians, um, or warnings, right? So there's different types of letters as well. So just know the different components of them, uh, different types of them, and that obviously helps then with your interpretation of the text. Uh, what is the letter, the epistle, intended to communicate? Was Paul intending to communicate his, um, how he was pleased with the Galatians that we, in the book that we saw last week? Um, remember, we were looking at the book of Galatians as an example last week when we were looking at historical context. Uh, we would conclude, well, no, Paul, was not, Paul did not intend that letter, that epistle, to be a thank you letter or um, a letter telling them how pleased he was with them. It was really the exact opposite. Right? Um, and the apocalyptic, the word is always hard for me to say, apocalyptic literature um, is the last one we'll look at tonight for genres. Uh, and Revelation then tends to fall in this category or does fall in this category. And for me, honestly, this is one of the hardest genres. I think for a lot of Christians, this is one of the hardest genres uh, because we have been trained and we like to uh, interpret Scripture literally, as literal as possible, right? And that's good, and that's something we should be doing. But when it comes to this type of genre, um, it calls for more symbolic, figurative type of interpretation based on the genre itself, apocalyptic literature. Um, and again, this is a big discussion among Christians, and it places you in different camps theologically how you interpret apocalyptic literature, whether if you take it more literally um, or more symbolically. Uh, so this is difficult uh, some characteristics of apocalyptic literature that um, the Kossenberger book brought out are three things. Um, apocalyptic literature tends to be um, a visionary or revelation means of communication. Right. So the Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation, had a vision, right? Um, and that was the main means of communication. He was having a vision. He was writing with the things he saw. So that's a component of apocalyptic literature, a visionary or revel revelationary means of communication. Uh, the second one is symbolic, figurative, and metaphorical language. That's another component, characteristic of apocalyptic literature. You have symbolic, figurative, or metaphorical language. And this is why it makes it tricky, right? Uh, and then the third characteristics characteristic with this genre, you have uh, dualism between earthly and heavenly realities. Um, those are the three components, characteristics that the Kossenberger book brings out, at least, on this genre. All right. We got through a lot. We still have some time, so that's good. 
Um, do you guys still love talking about genre? Um, like I said, we will be working a lot more through this, and we will be looking at specific texts in these genres, looking at one genre a week later. Uh, so hopefully that will uh, be good. And so this is just meant to serve as an inter- introductory. Um, but genres are incredibly important in order to establish the literary context, hopefully, as you can see. Uh, yes? Apocalyptic literature, is that only end times? I believe so. Uh, like Jason Isaiah gave a strange face. Talking? I don't know. I think so. What was that? Would think, Isaiah be considered? In, in some sense, when it talks about uh, the apocalypse, right, the end times uh, sort of works. I think the definition, the, he talked about the, the, the dualistic look between things, the visionary yeah. perspective. You don't have as much of the the combatant forces within Isaiah. You do have the looking ahead. So that's where I would probably, using that definition, distinguish between Isaiah, the end of Isaiah is prophetic, but not apocalyptic. But portions of Daniel possibly as apocalyptic. Sure. Um, yeah. And not prophetic. Yeah. I was just thinking with the dualism, like the heavenly scene in what, Isaiah 5. He's like, send me, and it's God in heaven. Sure. So, but there's no like evil battle. There's nobody battling. It doesn't look like well, a cartoon. ready to go into a battle. If it doesn't look like a cartoon with a bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you could tell. Well, so some of the these genres can. I don't want to say necessarily mix together, but switch back and forth easily um, within a book. Of the Bible, right? Like I said earlier, there's not you can't you shouldn't think of just one book. The Bible fits perfectly just one type of genre. Um, a lot of it is mixed in, and so it could get tricky. So, but that's a really good question. All right. So, do you guys remember the two components of literary context? The first component was. Genre and the second component was what? You guys remember from the definition from Duvall and Hayes? The two components, parts to the literary context. Yeah, so we have the particular form the passage takes, which is the literary genre. We just talked about those, right? And to the words, sentences, and paragraphs that the surrounding passage, um, that the surrounding passage that you are studying of the surrounding passage you are studying, right? So those are the, that's the second component. Now, so now we're going to get into the second component. So how to identify the surrounding context? Uh, this is incredibly important, and we talked about this as well earlier. Uh, this might seem obvious. Well, the way you identify the surrounding context is by reading the surrounding context, right? I mean, it sounds obvious enough, and you guys might be thinking that, and that's true. Um, Pastor Sam actually talked a little bit about this uh, reading in context. I believe it was the third week of this. Uh, so he gave us a taste of this um, 
how to identify the surrounding context of a certain passage you're trying to get at. Uh, but you can see here are three different um, things uh, that could help us. Three different steps, I should say. Um, so the first one is identify how the book is divided into paragraphs or sections. Um, so whatever text you're looking at, look at the entire book and see how it's divided up. How does the author divide up the book? Uh, if you're just going to look at paragraphs, that might be easier because you could just uh, see where paragraphs are and you can say, well, this is how it's divided up. Um, or sections. And the sections might be a little bit more difficult in seeing how the book is divided up in different sections. Uh, we have so many resources today and so many different types of Bible, uh, study Bibles and commentaries that help do this for us, right? Where my study Bible outlines the book for me before I even get to the book in my notes section so I could see how others have divided up the book. Uh, but if you were to do it yourself, how would you do that? So the question is, how do you divide the book into sections? What are some things that you would look for uh, to know when it might be a good time to get, or, or to know where there's a divide, or you should, um, where the book is getting into a different section? What do you guys think? How do you divide the book up into different sections? One example to get you guys started are conjunctions, right? Therefore, when therefore is used, you might be getting into a new section, right? Um, conjunctions could be a way uh, for you to split the book into different sections as you're looking at the surrounding text. What are some other ways you may do this? Like a lot of times they'll give like a whole slew of names and it then tends to change subjects after that. So a change of genre, right? Uh, that could be a change of genre. Or we looked at the historical narrative, components of the historical, the historical narrative, and uh, it could be a change within that, right? Um, or in the New Testament, a change of genre could be something like um, a greeting changing into a prayer, Right? Um, there's a change happening there. Um, what's another one? Change of topic. Change of topic, right? The main idea, change of topic or theme. That's an, that should be an obvious one, right? Um, so there's, those are three, conjunctions, change of genre or change of topic. Uh, I have two others I've listed. See if you guys could come up with those last two. Or maybe even a new one I didn't come up with. I feel like sometimes in the poetry literature you go between like lament and praise. Okay. I would probably put that under genre, like a change of um, genre in that sense. Or it could be a change of topic as well in that. Change of tone. Change of tone. Um, yes, actually, I have grammatical changes, right? So the subject, object, pronouns, verbs, tense, person, or number. I was trying to come to Elizabeth's oh, on this. Like, when you go from praising people to critiquing them. Sure, yeah. It could 
we could put it in some category. <laughs> but that could be an indicator there. And then the last one I have is change in time, location, or setting. Yes. Is that what you're going to say? I whispered it. Oh, I see. Be bold. Right. I mean, Jesus moves around a lot in the Gospels. Change of location. All right. That's a new section. Um, that's an easy indicator there. So identify how the book is divided into paragraphs or sections. Um, these three steps here are very easy steps for you to do when you are trying to work through the literary context. So the second one, after you do the first step, then summarize the main idea of each section, um, the main idea of each section in about a dozen words or less. So try to make it nice and concise. So after you identify how many sections you have in the entire book or section of a book, right, um, that surrounding the text you're looking at, then summarize the main idea of each of those sections. Um, it is a lot of work, but it's could be worth it, right? Then lastly, explain how your particular passage relates to the surrounding sections. Uh, so then after you see the main idea of each section, then you could see how each section is related to each other. And then when you're looking specifically at one section, maybe in the middle of everything that you've been working in, um, see how that's related to the surrounding text, right? How do I... That's how you identify the surrounding context. Three easy steps. Right? Um, all right, dangers of ignoring the literary context. Last week we talked about dangers of historical context. Um, now we're talking about dangers of ignoring the literary context. So ignoring the surrounding context is the first danger of ignoring the literary context. When we are working at in a specific small section of scripture, right, and the main focus is only five verses, it could be tempting just to stick in just those five verses, right? Because it's a lot of work um, breaking up the entire book into different sections and summarizing it all. Uh, but there can be dangers, obviously, in not doing that. So ignoring the surrounding context is a danger. Uh, and I gave some examples here. You can see, and I wrote down the passage itself. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And then also Matthew 18.20 says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, here I am among them. Them. So the question for you guys is, how have these passages been wrongly used? How should they be used? So let's look at the Revelation passage first. Um, what's happening in Revelation chapter 3? Can anyone remember? So the beginning of Revelation, starting in chapter 2 and going into chapter 3, we have letters to the seven churches, right? Uh, these are historical churches of the time of 
John, as he wrote this, uh, that he wrote to, right? And so this um, verse right here, verse 20, is something he's writing to a local church during his time. My question for you guys, how has this specific passage been used widely today that you suspect in the wrong way? Like it sounds like Jesus is standing outside the door and just knocking and it's up to us to let him in and it's more of a salvation like. Yes. Yeah. So we sometimes use this passage in, in evangelistic efforts, right? Uh, all you have to do is open up the door for Christ and let him into your heart. Um, we use it as we evangelize to non-believers. But within the historical and literary context, looking at the surrounding context itself, this is used referring to to a church, right? So believers who were considered lukewarm, um, that's what the text says in the surrounding uh, context. These Christians were lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, they were, um, in a way, cardinal Christians. So Christ, John, uh, Christ through John is saying that at you as Christians, right, you, um, Christ is there wanting to be the center of your life again. And he's knocking at your door and you have to let him in and ultimately uh, be in communion with him again. So I would use this text and I believe appropriately more so for believers and not necessarily for um, evangelistic efforts, right? So, and then the second one, Matthew 18. I feel like Pastor Jason has talked about this one a lot. Uh, For where two or three are gathered in my name, here I am among them. How has this passage been wrongly used? How should they be? How should it be used? By ignoring the surrounding context. Some people think if you have two people praying, two or three people praying, there's more power in that prayer because yeah. then the Holy Spirit's really going to be there. Yeah. And even the verse before, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Two or three are gathered in my name. There I am among them. This is the prayer meeting 101. It is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you guys are right. Um, when you just take this verse or verses, these two verses, right, and just pull them out and not look at the surrounding context, uh, you can come to wrong conclusions on what it's actually trying to communicate here. Even if you take the context before, before you can still take it as that context too. Because he's saying, if you sin, get together with your brother because you're more powerful together. That just doesn't, it doesn't negate that you aren't more powerful together. Sure. Because you're making the assumption that it only applies to when you get corrected with a brother, but sure. that, that's just a statement why you should. Okay, yeah. You, you know, reunite with a, a brother that has that you have something against. Yeah, so. There is a lesson in there. Lonnie is pulling out, right? He's 
showing the the context is about church discipline, as he mentioned. Uh, but also, there are times we could be tempted to use a text in Scripture to point to another truth about the Christian faith that could be true, like how we might interpret this. There could be more powerful power in prayer or just uh, people being together as a local church coming before God to some extent. But what we can't do, and this is what I'm saying, we can't use a text in Scripture that doesn't necessarily um, come to a conclusion such as how many people would like to conclude this, even though it may be true. We want to go to other parts of Scripture. I think you're stretching the context for the statement that you're trying to make because I think it's saying, when it reads it, is reunite with a brother because two or more are stronger together. Yeah. The statement end is two or more are stronger together is a fact whether or not you reunite with another. Yeah. But the, the reason it's said, you know, just because it is a fact here based on a context here, you can't ignore the fact that is given. It's sure. a straight fact. Sure. You know. <laughs> well, there are a lot of ways that you could potentially use a straight, what seems to be a straight fact outside of the context where it could be misapplied, such as nothing is impossible without God, right? That could seem like a straight fact, but ultimately we know that we can't do everything because we have the Holy Spirit working in us. So I would say it's the safest, right, to use this principle or this teaching point that's being done here in the context of what the passage itself is using it for. So I would argue that this is best used in the context of church discipline. You might make a point that uh, you could use it in other areas, but I I would look at other passages. If all of us together pray, then this, you know, whatever turmoil we're going through is going to be, the mountain will move. If all of us get together, you know, that what's the one, the mountain will move. That's not Take the small of a mustard seed. Right, the mountain will move. That, that's not what, what the intention of the thing was. The, and this isn't what the intention, all of us getting together to pray isn't the intention of it. It's all of us getting together is, makes us stronger. That's the intention, not that our prayer will be answered a certain but way. This text doesn't deal with stronger. The stronger language is not in Matthew 18. The, the stronger language, the two or three is coming together are gathered in my name, there I am among them in the process of a church practicing discipline for on God's local bride, he is with them in that. And it's a together thing, not a dictatorial thing by a pope or by a pastor, but by the people of which God dwells among them. So, like... The, the concept of stronger just isn't, it's not, the language isn't there um, in Matthew 18. Yeah. But like you can try, potentially make a theological point um, using other passages in scripture to make a point like that. Yeah. Um, so the, 
idea is, even though there can be true theological points, and a passage seems like it could potentially be pointing to that, when the, historic, when the surrounding context shows you that it's not, we shouldn't use that text to point to that could be true theological point. Does that make sense? I think the part that gets me is we got to be extremely careful because this goes to the what, the thing that we talked about earlier about theology that this was only for the time that so every fact if we take it too contextually is for the context of that one situation. If Jesus told the disciples, you can do this, that, must, that means it was only good for the disciples. In context, he, he didn't tell it to Lonnie, therefore this does not apply to me. Because in context, Jesus said this to these people and it doesn't apply to me. You know, so sure. if we get it too drilled into the context, too, too focused, then the Holy Spirit really doesn't exist today. Because he gave the Holy Spirit to the disciples, right. yeah. not me. He told them they could move the mountain. If they had the mustard seed, Sure. they could move a mountain because he was talking to them. See, we're taking it out of context. He was really just talking to those apostles. So every little statement in those four gospels, yeah. if we take it to the, to that this was, I can, I can make it drill down to tell you that you're taking it out of context because it wasn't told to you. It sure. wasn't told to our church in the 21st century. You know, it, because yeah. it, 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 there's that fine line of how you read that context because, oh, this is undisciplined. But was it disciplined for us? Or was it disciplined for this church in Matthew, these guys in Matthew? Well, what's funny in the Matthew <laughs> passage is Jesus talks were, about church to the disciples. Where there was no church yet. Where there was no church. So this is definitely looking forward. You know, but, you, but, you but it wasn't the church today. But yeah. you so I hear your point. <laughs> the, 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 we have to be careful to not define the context too narrowly. Yes. Because then we then will could lose the whole basis of which we believe Christianity applies today. And I, I do want to make a because point. we have some greater wisdom in reading sure. into the context that it's not for this situation. So something that we did not talk about that could be helpful with this discussion uh, is looking at the covenants, right? And what covenants uh, people are in at certain times that makes a difference. Um, so we aren't going to apply uh, the context um, or a story as perfectly paralleled ours uh, with someone under the Mosaic Covenant uh, as someone maybe under the New Testament Covenant or the New Covenant, I should say. So there are different things that need to be considered, such as covenants, and uh, so much more nuance to this that ultimately shows right, that this is a difficult task at the end of the day. Right. So last point before we wrap up, right? Um, dangers of ignoring literary context um, is ignoring the surrounding context. We saw examples there. Uh, and topical preaching slash teaching. I am not saying by putting this down that this is bad to do this. 
I am saying that when someone does teach topically, um, they are more at risk at taking passages out of context. There is a proper place to teach topically, and I would say it's good to do it sometimes, right? But it's actually even more difficult to teach topically versus um, exegetically through a text, expositionally, I should say, through a, a book at once because you have to work at the context here, context here, context here, versus just working at one context if you're working expositionally through a book of the Bible. So we'll end there. Um, let me close this out in prayer, and then if you want to discuss this more, let's do that. After. more than two of us here, so it's yes. more okay. <laughs> <laughs> let's pray. Uh, Lord, we love you, and again, we thank you for this time we have um, as we try to understand uh, how to interpret your word faithfully, Lord, and properly, Lord. Uh, we recognize we can't do this at all apart from your Holy Spirit, Lord. I pray that you will be working in all of us, Lord, um, as we try to know you more. I pray these things in your name. Amen.